You're listening to the Don't Tell My Grandma podcast. All right. So let's get started here. Yeah. Um, we just like to ask our guest how you're, how you're doing on the other side of the world. Actually doing really well. It's uh, right now, it's 9 p.m. in Vancouver, but I think of it as, wow, it's been a full day, but an amazing day as well. That's Aww, wonderful. That's How, a beautiful attitude. Yeah. How's the weather over there? Beautiful sunny day. Oh, that's great. Oh, very nice. Does it get quite brutal in Vancouver in the summertime? Not too bad. I I think I would say for all in Canada we have the best temperature. We have mild winters. So the uh, generally the snow stays on the mountain. But we also have uh, nice, comfortable summers, except a couple of weeks ago, it got up to 46 uh, degrees Celsius. Oh, so 46? Oh. It felt like I was back visiting the Middle East again. So Right. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the, the first time we talked, um, you said that you were getting Tucson weather because that's around yes. where I'm from. <laughs> Very dry heat. Arizona heat. I, I yeah. imagine you're having your conversations with some people that, like some friends in the US, they'll be like, 46, what is that? It sounds really cold. It's like, uh, that's Celsius, not Fahrenheit. I try to do, I try to do the conversion for them. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's something that I'm learning to do now that I'm J in Japan too. <laughs> well, let's get started and kick yeah, it off. Let's get started. Yay. All right. Welcome to the Don't Tell My Grandma podcast. I am your host, Wendy, and I'm joined by my wonderful husband and co-host, oh, Juan. How are you today? I am great. great. I am really um, comfy. Today was a nice morning that we took to be able to prepare for this great conversation that we're going to have. And I am thrilled to, to have someone with such a background. Uh, to be able to have this conversation and we've been re really just hitting it out of the park oh, with our absolutely. guests. Yes. It's, it's, it's great. We're really excited and happy that so many wonderful people are willing to have conversation with us and with our listeners, which are getting so much value and, and, and they're letting us know, which is really mm -hmm. great. I just hope my conversation with you is no foul ball today. Oh, oh we, we know it won't be. Yeah. You'll hit it out of the park too, I'm sure. So with that being said, let's welcome our guest, Sam Thiara. And Sam, is am I getting your last name right? Is that the pronunciation? You did it perfectly. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I didn't ask beforehand. So we have a very special guest, Sam Thiara, and he is a speaker and storyteller. He is the author of Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself. He's also a coach and mentor, an entrepreneur, an educator, and a community builder. So we're very excited to, to sit down with you today, Sam. Uh, welcome to the Don't Tell My Grandma podcast. Thanks for having me. And just, I appreciate the fact that we can be so far apart physically, but yet be so connected by the methods that we've got right now and be having a conversation today. 
That's right. That's right. We are very grateful of technology, especially this last year, this last year and a half. Technology has helped us connect and, and stay sane, I, I would say, be able mm -hmm. to to be there for family and friends. And we, we've been trying to take advantage of all the opportunities that has given us starting this podcast and also trying to reach out to people uh, much like yourself who are such accomplished professionals and, and trying to bring good out there. And I wanted to say first that like I, I haven't read your book yet. It's definitely on my list, in our lists. But I am so looking forward to reading that story because the idea of going on a journey to find yourself really hits home to me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's probably, for a lot of our listeners, it's also the same. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book? Oh, totally. It, so the idea was that there's two components to it. The first part is that our ancestral roots were lost because my grandfather left India probably around 1905, left uh, the central part of Northern India, landlocked, made his way to Calcutta. That's what we do know. And he was on his way to Argentina mm -hmm. uh, for cattle ranching. The boat stopped in Fiji. And everything for me collecting all this information was just based on oral history. And the older people get, the less history you have access to. But I was able to ascertain that he landed in Fiji, and we don't know if it was one of three reasons. One, coming from a landlocked nation, maybe he had enough of the sea travel and said, that's it, I'm done, I'm getting off the ship in Fiji. Or two, Maybe the boat docked in Fiji and he looked around. He says, well, this looks like paradise. It's a beautiful place. I'm going to get off here. Number three, maybe he thought this was Argentina. And he was like, okay, so let me get off the boat. And when the boat left, he was like, wait, this isn't Argentina? And uh, wound up settling in Fiji. And then eventually, you know, on the paternal side, my, my father was then born and then eventually got married. And then we, well, then they moved to England where I was born. And when I was a wee lad, we moved all the way to Vancouver, and that's where I've grown up. But it, the story of trying to find my ancestral roots is also about identity. Because if you look at it, I'm a British-born Canadian, and my parents are from Fiji Islands. My grandparents come from India. And I think I struggled with identity growing up because visibly, you're Indian, and yet you try to fit into Canadian culture, Canadian society. I mean, you play road hockey, you eat hot dogs, you go and hang out with your friends and, you know, you just um, assume that identity until you get beat up in school because you're Indian and you're like, well, no, I'm Canadian. And, you know, it, and I write about that in my book about this loss of this identity or unsure about my identity. And I think there's a lot of people that struggle with it. And people would come up and they say, what part of uh, India are you from? They make that assumption. I'm like, well, I wasn't born in India. Uh, I was born in England, raised in Canada. And they're like, no, 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 your parents, what part of India are they from? Well, my parents come from Fiji, which is near Australia, New Zealand. And they're like, wait, are you Indian? And it's like, well, my grandparents come from India. So I always struggled with how to answer that because other people said, you're not Indian, you're Canadian. And I decided that I wanted to go to India. That was around 2004. Because I, 
thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty. And I said, you know what? Nobody knows where our village is. My grandfather's house, paternal grandfather. I think I want to do this. And there were two driving forces behind it. One, there's a thin thread that's uh, basically connecting us to this village. And that's really limited information. And all I had was this faded photograph right here. And that's what I took with me on my journey to India with very little information. So it's a faded photograph for those who are listening to the podcast through audio means. It's a faded photograph of people standing there and somebody in the background, but it's very faded. And we knew the name of the village, the town where the post office was and the district. Mm. But the problem is people from that region were like, no, I think you're mistaken. I think uh, the name of the village is wrong or this is not right. And why are you even searching? So all I had was that thin thread. And I also write in my book that when I was nine years old, my father had an industrial accident and became a paraplegic. Never walked again, never been to India and I wanted to do this for him. So I went and embarked on this journey. But while I was in India, it made me realize I was a foreigner going to a land that should not be foreign to me. And while I was there, I also established this distinction between a tourist and a traveler. And there's nothing wrong with being a tourist, but a tourist wants to just see but not experience. And I was hungry for experience. I wanted to walk the streets. I wanted to not only see the magnificence of the structures, but I also wanted to see the injustice, the poverty that exists, not from a voyeurism standpoint, but because this is actually part of India. But I had this euphoric moment about my identity and how I captured this identity. Because growing up, I always saw my life as a tali, and a tali is a platter with segmented dishes. So I'm British, Canadian, Indian, Fijian, but they're in separate compartments. It'd be like a bento box, I guess you could say. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's all separated. So I'm British, Canadian, Indian, and Fijian. And then I also like to throw in that there's a side of chutney that's Irish because I, for 11 years, I played in an Irish military pipe band. So that gave me a little bit of the Irishness. In it. But I found out by going to India, instead of segmenting my life into these compartments, I actually am a rice dish called kichdi, and kichdi is where you go to your fridge, you have rice, uh, pull whatever vegetables you have, you put it all together, and you add your spices, and you blend everything together. And I realized I'm kichdi, which is this blend of flavor. It embodies all of the things of and components of who I am, and I don't have to segment myself. So instead of just trying to be Canadian or British, I'm able to be all of the things I am. And I also realized I went to India to find my, my Indianness. I realized I was always Indian. I didn't need to go to India to determine it, but it really did help. But I think people really struggle with this idea of identity. And I think we're all kichdi, or if you're in the North American region, you're an omelet. Uh, if you're in Asia, maybe you're a bibimbap. It just, it's a blend of flavors and let's embrace it all. Yeah. It's really interesting when you mentioned uh, your journey about discovering your identity, when you mentioned that people were saying like, well, 
what part of India are you from? And I assume like that question comes out of them perceiving your features and like your your physicality, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of begs the question of like, what is identity? Is it your your DNA? Is it your your face? Outwardly appearance. Yeah, your mm -hmm. outwardly appearance, or is it your culture, your your values, the things that make you who you are, the the things that you you can say made you who you are, right? So what do you feel about that? Like inside, do you feel you're like 33% Indian, 33% Fijian? Fiji, that Fiji? would be more segmenting again yeah. though, right? As you said, like you're, you are that dish. Yeah, the kitchari. The kitchari, which is everything molded together. But mm -hmm. you could, you can't say you're either or you're all of them at the same time. But I, one, I think you brought up a really good point with that question, because I think there's an outward and an inward. And what happens is uh, people will look at individuals and they'll say, uh, okay, what, where uh, they'll either make an assumption of where they think you come from, or they'll ask you, where do you come from? So it, it, in other words, there's the physical side, which is your outward appearance. But your identity is also your inward uh, inner, which isn't always even based on ethnicity or culture. It's based on your upbringing. It's based on your perspectives, uh, the things that you embody within you. The physical is there. And I would say the social is within and the spiritual is within the person. So there's, I think there's two types of identity that I would, I would sort of say there is. But oftentimes uh, people would look at the shell and then make an assumption and not really until you get to know a person, until you actually have a conversation with them, all of a sudden, then you start realizing that, okay, wait, there's this blend or that they're, you know, this person who, you know, has these Indian features actually, you know, does this or does that. And it's like, wow, okay. Well, okay, take it for, for this, for example. So I have the features that are Indian And yet for 11 years, I was playing in an Irish military pipe band, wearing a full kilt and the whole Irish. And there were the rare times where people said, like, you're not Irish. Why are you wearing this? And for them, it was difficult to accept because in order to wear that uniform, the military uniform with the orange saffron kilt and the green tunic, you had to be Irish. But our band was multicultural. Like, I mean, we had a Piper from Singapore, we had a, another Piper from African, I'm Indo-Canadian. And, you know, it, it's just that whole identity piece. Other people just were like, oh, this is brilliant. Like, just to see the, the blend of all of you guys. And it was more just, they wanted to appreciate the music we were playing over, well, shouldn't you be Irish to be wearing this uniform? Uh, I think that some people have those limitations. And really what... I think we need to do is remove those blinders, those perspectives. And I mean, that's where like your podcast, the people who are listening, it potentially opens up avenues and ideas and thoughts that can help us uh, better to appreciate people of different backgrounds. When you say like they told you, shouldn't you be Irish to wear those attires? I think what they wanted to say is, shouldn't you look Irish? To wear those attires because that's the only thing they can judge from you at face value and i think that's why people base their perception 
right away. But technically, I was close to Ireland. I was born in England. Right. Yeah. But they wouldn't know that. <laughs> they wouldn't yeah, but know what that. is the stereotypical Irish person? It's like a white, blonde person with green eyes. So Red hair, yeah. Oh, red hair, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just so many people, myself included, are guilty of immediately placing people in these boxes. And it's really hard to stop yourself, stop that urge or that reaction to categorize people and for the mind it's so much simpler you don't have to work and you don't have to think about oh this person might be from here but he might have these cultural roots and he he could have been raised here like the brain just goes to the simplest you know default response (laughs) brain is trying to save energy exactly exactly but once you do the work and kind of break free from that then the more people you get to meet and the more interesting it becomes. That's where real connections can be made. And there's so many times I've been in the company of my Asian students. They look Asian, but I already know their backgrounds. And it's interesting because we'll be sitting down and somebody will come up and say, well, you know, are are you from China or Hong Kong? And they're like, actually, we're Peruvian. (laughs) What? You're Peruvian? And there's like, yeah, yeah. And they start speaking in full Spanish because... You know, there's a there's a huge Asian population that uh, flourished in uh, Peru, for example. And uh, it's so funny because it's like you sit there laughing because you're like, man, you just, you know, (laughs) you just made the biggest mistake of your life. But it's also interesting because we carry, like you say, uh, Wendy, we carry these perceptions. And it's always fascinating because for me, I don't carry those perceptions with me. And I just find um, I'm focused on people and just appreciating the different cultures and people. And I just remember that I've been to the Middle East about six different times for work. And I just remember the first time I was heading to Middle East, there was this, a number of people that said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. Like you're, you're going to one of the most dangerous places in the world. And I said, well, I mean, I think we should be fine or, you know, I'm fine. I'm going to go. And I landed in Kuwait which happened to be right next to Iraq. And at that time, Iraq was going through major upheaval. And that's where people thought, okay, it's so dangerous because what we see on the news and the social media channels and things. And I remember, you know, how dangerous they said it was. But when I came back, people said, oh, oh, you know, you made it. And like, tell us, what was it like? Like, how dangerous was it? I said, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe how dangerous that part of the world is. And they said, really, what was it like? Like, what did you see? I said, it was so hard to cross the road. And they're like, okay, what do you mean? What about the terrorism? What about the kidnappings and things? I said, no, no, there's no road safety. That's the hard part. That's the dangerous part. I could walk around midnight in any of those countries and feel safe. Now people had responded, yeah, but you sort of look like you fit in there. I said, no, no, even my Canadian friends they walked around midnight by themselves and they said it's one of the safest places in the world to be. Now, there is a dangerous part of the Middle East. I'm going to share with you. And the dangerous part is this. So I was in Bahrain and the conference finished on Thursday. I'm leaving on Saturday. And on Friday, one of the conference organizers, a wonderful soul, said, I'm going to come and pick you up on Friday and take you around Bahrain. So I said, oh, no, perfect. So Friday morning, she came and 
as I approached and saw her, she said, Sam, I'm so sorry, but there's been a change of plans. I was like, well, no, if you're busy, don't worry about it. She goes, no, no. My mom says I have to bring you home for lunch. Now, the dangerous part is this. If you have to sit across from a Bahraini mother who's cooked this entire meal <laughs> and she's got a spoon in her hand and she's looking at you and sees an empty plate, she puts it in, she puts it into your plate and she sits there and watches with this smile on her face. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. dangerous. That's yeah. expectation right Expectations. there. <laughs> you, you better eat that food. No. And then the thing is, she's going to keep filling your plate up. So my tip, if you ever go to anywhere around the world and you're sitting from a mother who's cooked this big meal, and I don't care if it's Africa, Middle East, Asia, India, eat slow, smile a lot, and appreciate the meal. But that's the dangerous part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is amazing how stories like that can open us to actually see what what these cultures really are because what we see from the media and all this fear mongering and sensationalism is portraying these places as so dangerous and and foreign when actually neither of the people who who say those things uh, have been there so uh, i really value when people who have had that opportunity to go out of their way to to visit these places, I, what, my my coworkers also been to the Middle East on on what what would be considered like the difficult times, the dangerous times, and he just has amazing things to say about this place. Like the experience was so enriching and and feeling experience it yourself and the people you meet along the, people the way you meet. too uh it's just wonderful and it's something that i also look forward to to experience here myself so th thank you so much for sharing that like i know our listeners we appreciate that no but think of it this way i mean teaching at university and my students come from international boundaries and local boundaries and things and over the last 20 some odd years it's been about 5,000 conversations i've had to date Well, I can pretty much go anywhere in the world and there's a mother waiting for me to cook a meal. And the students have said, my parents want to meet you. And I've met no, a number of parents. And it's, it's one of the most richest feelings that you get. And they do it with such authentic, authenticity and genuine sense and feeling. Um, there's a word in my language called piar, which is P-Y-A-A-R, And it's just this love and respect for people. And it goes back to what you had just said that, you know, when someone goes out of their way for you, they do it out of this aspect called biad. And whether I've been in China or uh, the Middle East or Africa, people just are really good people. And, you know, I've just built so many wonderful relationships around the world as a result. And I think we just need to keep doing this and uh, talking to people and you never know where uh, those conversations may lie. Yeah. Changing the perceptions that we built over decades of fear mongering, it's very important. So the people that represent these cultures don't feel like they're outliers of like, oh, 
everybody thinks that people from my culture are terrorists mm -hmm. or thugs or mm -hmm. uh, drug dealers or stuff like that. That's oh. conversations that we really need to have. And uh, there's something that I wanted to ask you. Um, are you familiar with the concept of third culture kits? Uh, third culture kids, yes. Uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, but third culture kids are so you've got immigrant parents, and then you've got you know they become landed immigrants or whatnot, and then they assume this life. Yes, I mean I've, I've got many of them surrounded uh, around me. Right. So so yeah, as you said, it is when a kid is transplanted from its native culture to like the parents move to another country with a different culture. The parents bring their culture to this new country. They still have their their values and, and, and their beliefs and everything. Yeah. While the kid, it's growing up, he gets to absorb not only the culture from their parents, but also the culture of their surroundings. Uh, and the amalgamation of these two cultures creates a third culture. And that's why they're called third culture kids. So there's a wonderful TEDx speech. Uh, I don't remember exactly the speaker, uh, but it really resonated with me, even though I don't consider myself a third culture kid because I moved out of my, my, my country as an adult. But I feel like for people like yourself, who you said you, you, you were born in Canada? Uh, born in England, raised in Canada. Right. So in a way you are in that circumstance, you, you, were, you were in a way a third culture kid. Because my parents are from Fiji and that culture penetrates in there as well. Exactly. So as you said, it's an amalgamation of everything. I, I have always wanted to have a conversation with someone who has that experience and Personally, myself, like I, I never felt like I could identify with the culture of my country. I felt more Western in the sense of like more American, but I don't think that I can identify myself in that box either. So I have my own version of, of third culture, which is a culture that I built myself from all the experiences that I've had. How do you feel yourself in terms of what identifies you and what culture you're what what identity you're imbuing your kids? Like, what do you teach your kids? Like, do you give them a little bit of Indian traditions and then also a little bit of traditions from Canada and, and, and so on? To your point, uh, again, because I teach at uh, the university and a college, our college is an international school. So uh, then the students come there and then they transition. And actually what you've described uh, I did a research project for our school on this subject, actually. And the thing is, we, and I'll get to the, the question that you were asking, but I also wanted to set this up as well, is that oftentimes we polarize. So we always sort of look at it as domestic students and international students. And we sort of have polarized it that way. But that third culture is a, a very important piece because that's something that I think we have ignored. The students who have immigrant parents, and so when they go home, they're speaking one language. When they're with their friends, they're speaking another language. The parents want them to 
you know, study hard, get a really good job, be an accountant, be a lawyer, be a doctor. And then the student wants to be in digital marketing. And then all of a sudden there's this conflict that emerges. Now they're coming to me, the, the, the students coming to me. And it's so funny, I've had these conversations with my students because they said, Sam, I'm so sorry. I had to lie to my parents today or last night. I snuck out of my room and I left. And now I'm thinking, okay, maybe they're dating somebody. They said, I left, I had to, uh, I left. And then I, I told my parents, or they also say, I told my parents, we're gonna go to my friend's house, we're gonna study, but I actually went to a marketing event. And I'm like, you went to a marketing event and you, you couldn't tell your parents because the parents don't want them to be this because they have this idea. They struggle with this, like you say, third culture because they're traversing domestic and international and it's very difficult for them. I think for me, fortunately, I was very young when I moved from England to Canada and you start assuming and absorbing into that whole Canadian society, Canadian life. But equally at the same time, I don't think I had this solid Indian background until my grandmother moved from Fiji to Canada. Because it wasn't that my parents shielded us from that, they just wanted us to be Canadian. It's just everybody got busy with their lives. And then, you know, we never really, I could understand Hindi, but I couldn't speak it. But when my grandmother arrived, well, she didn't speak English and I didn't speak Hindi. So it's more like, we had to communicate and talk to each other. So I, I'm fortunate in that, you know, I started learning. And what was interesting is in my primary school and high school, it was predominantly Canadian kids. And what I mean by Canadian kids is Caucasians. It's when I got to university, I suddenly was exposed to a much more diverse cultural mix. And it started making me question, not about that. It wanted, I wanted to then now start learning more and more about my Indian background because now I was being exposed to more Indian students. Now going to what you had said about, well, what about your kids? Well, you know, we try to enrich them with different cultures and not even just ours. I expose them to uh, help them to understand not just Canadian culture, but uh, my best friend, he's an Anglican deacon. So, you know, they, they, you know, when they have a conversation, now they can, if they need to, talk about that Christian faith. What, some of our dearest friends come from the Muslim background. So, you know, they get to experience some of the uh, celebrations and uh, cultural aspects of of Muslim culture. So I, I'm, I want to expose them to so many different backgrounds. And just even today, I had a conversation or a get together and I had my boys with me and she's of Korean descent, uh, but she's very Canadianized, but she's also Korean. And we were just talking and whatnot, but they were able to pick up the nuances of the Korean culture and what that was like and what that means. And my, I think the benefit is my boys just look at people as humans, as people. And, you know, that's the best way. I mean, they're not uh, saying, okay, what, what's this person's culture and background? They see them as people first, but they embrace all these different uh, backgrounds. And it's so funny because uh, my son's friends, they're like, okay, can we go over to 
my, my younger son's name is Sahil. Let's, can we go to Sahil's house and have butter chicken? So it's like everybody is exchanging. And even in my neighborhood, I mean, the one neighbor is Taiwanese, the other neighbor is Italian. Oh my gosh, we have so many food exchanges. I mean, when wow. England was eliminated uh, or lost in the European Cup, my neighbor who's Italian came and knocked on my door as condolences. Well, we sent butter chicken over to their house. And then we also sent it to the Taiwanese, but then the Taiwanese family sent us dumplings and we were just like, wow. So we have really good neighbors around us. Oh man, goals. Wow, you have seemed like you have a very diverse neighborhood. That is seriously goals for us. <laughs> wow. Well, I I really appreciate that way of um, showing your children how to look at people as people. And I have the experience of having, you know, this identity struggle when I was growing up, especially as um, a high school student and in college too, um, because I was adopted from China. My parents are Anglo and I was adopted at such a young age that I, and um, I went to the U.S., at age one. So I'm very much Americanized. But now I realize that feeling this sense of being lost, culturally lost, isn't a bad thing, because it's really helped me become more sensitive to other cultures and just keep an open heart and this curiosity for learning about other people not just to know like where did they come from, but getting to know them and also gaining this sense of appreciation. So me not having to fit this box, at least learning that I didn't have to in the end, has, I think, been an advantage in many ways. Oh, I totally agree because it's more of uh, the benefit is you've been exposed to many different backgrounds and cultures. And no matter what, you're you're a human first, but you've got uh, these various areas. And I mean, with the book Lost and Found, some people have said, you know, I, I would have really liked to have gone and, you know, learn more about my own ancestral roots and things like that. Uh, but you know what, the, the records and everything, I will never be able to find, uh, uh, you know, uh, the roots. And I said, but here's the thing. I was fortunate. I was able to actually accomplish the task at hand. But, you know, I was talking to somebody recently who said, you know, the, the historical records, their family background is Sicilian. So they said, you know, we'll never find it. And I said, but here's the thing. What if you went to Sicily and walked around? Does it feel comfortable? Does it feel right? You may not find a house, you may not find the street or the village, but just the fact that you are walking in the same place as your ancestors. How does that feel? And it's worth just going there just to experience that. Because I know that when I was in India, even though I'm not from there with regards to my, my immediate generations and whatnot, there was something about the place that just offered me still this level of connection. But here's the thing. I mean, I've been to Bangkok five times and I've fallen in love with that place. Barcelona, been there once, but it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And it, everywhere I go, I go with this open heart, open mind. 
And it's always interesting because I just want to share this quote with you that I wrote in my book. And it's, a, it's not a long quote, but I think it really captures the essence of what we're talking about. The quote says, travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you. Hopefully, you leave something good behind. And that was by Anthony Bourdain. But I think that really captures the essence of when we are in the company of people of different cultures, different backgrounds. If I'm inquisitive, it's not to try to peg someone or to, you know, try to slot them into a place. It's more of just, you know, I want to know the person, you know, and I'm, and Wendy, like, for example, I'm fascinated by your background. I mean, just the fact that, you know, like you say, being adopted and uh, that whole life and, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes really applies to both of you, but it, it's one that really resonates for me. It's everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. And, you know, you don't have to fit into anyone's narrative because it's your narrative. Right. That's right. That's very true. I feel like our journeys have been very particular, very challenging in some ways, especially because we needed that growth. And the fact that we've taken the chance to go out there to place as far as Japan it is to, to us, especially for me, it was literally the other side of the world. And uh, experience for myself, trying to find myself, right? What is there in the world that may resonate with me? And uh, I've found so much, so much richness, so much growth, challenges for sure, but also a lot of warmth, a lot of wisdom and uh, great food. And I have so great, I am so grateful that uh, I gave myself that opportunity. And I feel like other people should definitely do that too. And especially if you have the opportunity to have a conversation with someone who may look different to you and, and may have a different experience in life because they're the ones who, who look different to everybody else, everybody else. They can get so much out of that conversation and, and we need to have more conversations like that. We need to have more families who are willing to not only expose their kids to the culture they have around them, but also all other cultures and hopefully they can start seeing people as what they are, which is people. And, and that can really help us solve a lot of problems in, in the world. I agree. I mean, I would say that uh, the more one travels, the less you have these biases because, you know, uh, being exposed to different cultures, different backgrounds, it's enabled me to see, you know, how people live and uh, the lifestyles that they have. Like in India, and I wrote about this, is the hardships that I've seen in people. But there's this resiliency at the same time. You know, they're not, they're not just laughing because, you know, they're like, yeah, look at how little I have in life. But 
I mean, and I wrote about this. I said, they have worries, but I have worries as well. But my worries are different than their worries. Their worries may be the future of their children and, and what lives they have. My worry might be, oh, I've got to pay this bill and, you know, the credit cards are coming due and all of that. They're different worries, but just the fact that seeing their resilience and the fact that even though they may have little, they're just going to give give it away. And I think we can learn a lot from so many cultures and people where, you know, we may hold on to things, but when they come for a visit, man, you just, they just give you stuff. Like uh, they want to make sure that you're looked after and that you're comfortable and that they can make you smile. Like, I, you know, that's, that only comes by, you know, actually immersing yourself and being a traveler, not a tourist. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think it's, we are so privileged and blessed to be able to travel the world and meet so many people and live, live in a country like Japan. Holy cow. Like not a lot of people even have the chance to visit. And there are some people who are just, they live in that fear that like, oh, this is just travel is too great of a thing for me. It's something that I can never reach. So for that type of person who maybe doesn't have the means to travel or maybe just has that that fear of taking that first step, getting that ticket, what do you, what would you advise them to do to start broadening their horizons? Yeah, no, I um, I want to reflect on a something you just brought up because 2018 uh, I was invited to speak at a conference in Zimbabwe. So Vancouver to Zimbabwe was literally a 40-hour flight from ho- house to hotel. Oh. And it was only there for three days. <laughs> oh, it was all travel. <laughs> it was. And then from there, I went to South Africa for about uh, four days to go see a dear friend of mine. But what was interesting is uh, while I was in South Africa, I was able to actually go on a safari. And this is not a game reserve. It's not a zoo. This is the wild. And there's no guarantee you're going to see anything. But I was able to um, see elephants and lions and uh, zebras and rhinos and giraffes. But there's 850 hectares here, so there's no guarantee. But when I came back and I shared my pictures, it was interesting the people who made the comment, wow, it's something I always wanted to do. The key word wanted to do, right? My thing is, you know, pick somewhere. And if you've never really gone anywhere, pick somewhere that's going to be easier to wade into. For example, like if you've, if you've lived in North America, I mean, going to England or I would say Spain, because uh, there's a, a lot of tourists there as well, that's pretty safe. Or Australia, New Zealand. I mean, it's safe in the sense of not uh, from a harm or risk, but just safe in the sense of what you might feel comfortable in that environment in, you know, so, you know, but equally at the same time. So it's like, you know, maybe start out small and go out to somewhere that may be a little bit approachable and easier for you. But the main thing is when you go travel, leave your country behind. Because what happens is people will go to visit and they'll say, yeah, but in Canada, we, you know, oh, yeah, the the things are, you know, our, our stores are bigger than this or it's the ugly American. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Expectations. And I, I've told, there's been a couple of times where I've traveled with people and, you know, they're like, oh yeah, no, in Canada it's this or United States it's this. And I said, no, no, leave the country behind and now look at it through this lens. And all of a sudden it, it changes for them. So leave the country behind, explore. And, you know, and I applaud, like there are some people I know who have never traveled and they just said, okay, after my conversation, that's it. You know what? I am actually heading off to this place. I don't know what's going to happen. And they just, and then they come back and they're like, wow, what an experience. And the people I met and the things I got to do. And, you know, so leave your country behind, maybe start a bit easier. And uh, eventually maybe you'll convert to a traveler from a tourist. Yeah. When they do that, the hard turn, sometimes it's very surprising. I, I I definitely sympathize with that feeling of like, I've seen the world and I have loved ones that I wish they also experienced that. And every time I have that conversation with friends, usually because I've thankfully some of my family have already visited us, go out there, like go out there and experience it yourself. Stop saying like, oh, I wish I did that, like you said, or uh that's been one of my dreams yeah like they always feel they always put it in in the horizon because it's too scary or even in past tense wanted like oh i gave up on this but i wanted to do this they they talk about it like a son they lost yes and and it's so it's so sad for me because i feel like you know all the the things that you feel are on your way we're on my way and i still said like you know what let's just do it mm-hmm. like, everyone's like yes it it is expensive yes it is uncertain yes you might feel uh out of your comfort zone and especially like there are different challenges if you're a woman there are other things that you need to consider and depending where you're going to it's also very important to to be educated to be aware of the, the the risks that you put yourself in. But there's so much value out there that that you can get and, and how much you can grow. Totally. And what I do is if I know that uh, a single female is going to go travel, well, again, because I've got the, all those connections, I always say, okay, let me put you in touch with this person. Doesn't mean that they're going to be, you're going to stay with them. But you know what, if you're ever in trouble or if you just want to go grab a coffee with them and just uh, have someone that you can sometimes just take a walk with, Hey, here's this person. And I just connect them. And then all of a sudden it's like, it, there's this sense of relief. Uh, the, uh, the person I just had coffee with today, uh, the one who's Asian Korean, uh, like Korean background, uh, she was going to Cambodia and uh, I had been there maybe six months earlier. And then I already know the Tuk Tuk driver, uh, so I just said, here, let me put you in touch with Sam. And he uh, was more than obliging. And she was like, oh, my gosh, it was so amazing. Because it, all of a sudden, we felt very comfortable because of that recommendation that you made. So, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, having that sense and aware of it. Uh, but the, the main thing is, you know, especially that the pandemic is slowly melting away. This is a great opportunity now to say, okay, get double vaccinated, 
where is it that you'd like to go next? You know, and I've got so many places I need to visit, but uh, we'll have to see where my first trip is, you know, because I think that's one question I get asked a lot. Okay, Sam, so come on, you, I think I've been to about 40 countries now. And they're like, okay, so where are you going first? And I'm like, I can't even answer. Or the other question I get asked, what's your favorite place? Do you know how I respond? I say, I, this is how I respond. I said, every single place I've visited has its own uniqueness and its own beauty. I can't answer that question, I'm sorry, because I, I'm not gonna, it's like asking your kids or uh, asking someone, <laughs> yeah. which one's your favorite, mom or dad? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or who's your favorite kid? <laughs> yeah, something like that. But uh, yeah. I don't have a favorite. I don't know. Well, you said that you've traveled a lot. Do you have a favorite or do you just sort of feel the same way that, uh, you know what, It every place has its own uniqueness? Yeah, I I wouldn't say I've traveled a lot, unfortunately. I, I've visited a little bit of the of Asia and some of the U.S. Oh, unfortunately, being a Dominican, my passport is not very strong, so... I need to get visas for entering almost every country in the world. Uh, but that's one of the things that we want to do. And I definitely, every place that I've visited has a special place in my heart. And uh, there's always a beauty either in their cuisine, in their nature, in, in the their people, people uh, that you can appreciate. There are things that are not as good, but there's always something to appreciate and as you said, I can I can pick a favorite. Well, and those imperfections—that's what makes up the society. Uh, and now I feel like I'm I'm being the podcast host. Wendy, how about you? Do you have a favorite place? <laughs> That's okay. Well, I have studied abroad and I visited South South America and Europe along with different Asian countries as well. And I'm with you. It's just I think that's such an impossible question to answer. Because you find so many, so many imperfections and so much beauty in every place that you go. It's just like comparing them and putting like the number one on one place doesn't seem fair, doesn't give any of the places justice. So I have special memories and connections to each place that I visit and or some that are not so special but they turn into great stories at yeah, least yeah, so yeah. yeah i'm with you on that i it's guess just, i guess a more interesting question would be like can you tell me something special about every place you've visited Ooh, or a special place a special place yeah, yeah. And, and and that way it's it gives you the space to like revisit and explore again all the beautiful things and the right. beautiful things that you've done in your life right because just the the having the adventure the 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 experience of traveling is such an accomplishment and it's such an opportunity to grow as a person as i assume you've experienced yourself like when a person who hasn't traveled start going out of that comfort zone and and, and visiting other cultures it changes them fundamentally in such a way that it can be very very surprising and oh and they'll be changed forever. And once they're bitten, they want to just keep traveling. Yeah. 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 The travel bug. The travel bug. Yeah. Yeah. That's very real. No. And that's where like, uh, you know, my passport's at the ready. Um, there may be a couple of work trips that I have to do within Canada still. Uh, there might be a conference in uh, the States that I have to speak at. 
But apart from that, uh, I have my favorite people I like to travel with. Now, if I go with my wife, that's a different type of vacation that I wind up doing with my wife and kids. But then I have my best friend and my cousin. Those are my compatible travelers and my niece as well, compatible travelers. And that's the best part is when I travel with them, it's a, it's something that's really rich for me because I can actually go out and do, like when I went with my best friend to China and Singapore, I mean, we wound up sleeping overnight on the Great Wall of China. And I've got all of these Asian Chinese students who are like, are you kidding me? I've never even been to the Great Wall. And I'm going like, well, we slept overnight. You can do that? Whoa. Well, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're, no, Wendy, I don't know if you're allowed to, but we had a guide. So he allowed us to, or I guess he, we were four hours outside of Beijing. So it was actually in uh, quite a deteriorated part of the wall. We had to hike about a kilometer switchbacks and then scale the wall. And then we found a flat part and then we wound up spending the night there and uh, sleeping in our tents. Yeah. So, I mean, it was actually, but that's the best part. Like, I mean, now that becomes what a memory. Yeah. What amazing memory. And I feel also like, I remind myself sometimes of how much the world is changing and that there are some things that are getting out of our reach. Like, for example, if you've never visited, what is the name? The ruins of the oh, Machu, Picchu. Ma Machu Picchu. You might never be able to do it because they're close in that. And so if you've ever wanted to travel and there's something you want to visit, you should feel that urgency. Now's like, the time. You don't know when some things might be out of your reach. And right, right. I feel sometimes China might become like that too. Like it might be really, really difficult to have those experiences, like you said. But it was also interesting because when I went to Siem Reap in Cambodia and Angkor Wat, again, that's a World Heritage Site. I don't know, maybe in the future they may close it. But it, I was fascinated when I went there. The structure was amazing and really beautiful, but it was the people, the tourists that I saw. Because again, when I go to a place like that, I like to be in my own space. I like to just see the magnificence before me, but you go there at sunrise and my cousin was with me, the one who I really enjoy traveling with. And we were just both looking around and there was all of these people just milling about and talking and uh, not really seeing the structure itself. And then, you know, the sun starts emerging and people are like looking at it, taking their pictures. It was also interesting because you got those people with their yoga mats taking that perfect Instagram photo. But here's the thing. As soon as the sun had risen and now it was breakfast time, everybody just took off. And my cousin and I were like, oh, we have to go inside. Let's go to the temple because, you know, we weren't in any rush and we hadn't had breakfast yet. But we're like, now that everybody's gone, let's just go walk. And then I saw this young Buddhist monk. Uh, we, we sat down. He said his prayers. He tied a red uh, uh, string around my wrist and did uh, the blessings and things. Well, all of those people just left. And it was like, OK. Well, and again, I, I, I have to be cautious on this because Again, maybe it's being a tourist and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I just really want to be there in the presence of the magnificence of Angkor Wat. And, uh, you know, what was what was people's reasons for being there? 
that perfect Instagram shot? Or was it uh, just to sort of say, okay, I've been there and then that's it. Okay, let's go and have breakfast now. Um, I don't know. I just, I like to embrace it. And that's anywhere around the world, whether it's Egypt or uh, Africa or in uh, South Africa or anywhere that I've been. I just want to sit there. Like if I'm in a cathedral, I'll sit there and, you know, just absorb and think about the people who built it, the people who uh, have walked the halls here. And I'll just sit there and just observe. But then you'll see the busloads of people come and they look at it, they do the guided tour and everything, and then they're gone. So it just varies. Yeah. I think be able to, to be able to be at the place also makes it real. Just like, the fact that we we read like oh yeah there thousands of years ago there was a civilization that built some of the biggest structures on earth it it still feels like fantasy until you go there and you see you you admire you you take in yeah you take in all that enormity and and it makes it real and i feel like it definitely changes your perception of of the world yeah. Totally. I mean, when I went with my best friend and we were in Egypt, we didn't, well, and the guy said, uh, would you like to ride the camels? And I was like, no, I don't want to ride the camels. But what I really want to do is I actually want to go inside the pyramid. And then we were able to go into the great pyramids of Egypt. We actually went right into the pyramid and uh, was able to actually make it into where the tombs are inside those large pyramids. And that's, but see, that was more interesting to me than to go ride a camel, you know, to have my picture taken or ride a camel. Um, you know, so I've been able to see some pretty amazing things. Like uh, I was three feet away from flowing lava in the big island of Hawaii. I'd got to see mother nature and magnificence about um, creation here in Vancouver or Vancouver Island. I was 10 feet away from a gray whale in the wild that just spy hopped out of the water just, it just sort of came out of the water and just we sort of were looking at each other and then it just sort of was there and then it just sort of slowly dissipated down below and it, these the, these things go on and on with regards to what I've been able to capture on the journeys but we all have this opportunity yeah we do I, I appreciate you um, reminding us of just being more present in the moment because of course everyone wants to bring home that amazing photo or post the most beautiful photo of the sunset but because everybody thinks that they, their photo is the most beautiful right one. right but then you look at it and you're like oh i don't even remember witnessing that in person like how did it feel what were the smells what were the sounds that i heard what was the air like you miss out on all of that because you're so focused on producing something well and and that's where when we were uh in rome we again I walked everywhere we know there wasn't a bus tour but we wound up going to the Vatican and I just remember because we weren't on a bus tour we wound up sort of hanging out there and I told my wife I said I don't know something's going on because they got barricades and stuff but you know tour buses were coming tour buses were leaving and we just stuck around and before I know it people started lining up behind us and we were right at the very front of the line or this uh, barricade. Well, all of a sudden, dignitaries walked by, uh, cardinals walked by, and 
actually the Pope walked 10 feet in front of us, just by us. And, but the thing was that, you know, people actually go to the Vatican and in the main square can hear him in one of the windows up in the top. Well, we were just 10 feet away. And that's again, because we just sort of said, well, we're not in any rush. I think something's happening. Let's just hang out here and see what happens. And 10 feet away, the Pope just walked right past us. And, uh, you know, it was like, wow, okay, there's the Pope. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you have a myriad of, of stories that you can share and we will love to keep talking with you. And, uh, we really appreciate your time, uh, the time that you've so graciously given us to, to have this conversation. And, uh, it has definitely been so enriching for us, mm -hmm. especially for me. Um, and unfortunately we didn't have enough time to talk about all, all your other things, uh, being a speaker and a storyteller and an entrepreneur of, I wanted to explore those things. So maybe we can save that for another conversation. Well, I think we got a, a really good taste of his storytelling. Oh, and yes, for sure. Speaking, for so sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was very much covered in this podcast, thankfully. Yeah. Oh, I'm more than more than happy to come back and speak again. And the whole idea behind it is it's a conversation. And the idea is um, there is no thanks required. It's I look at it as building new friendships, building new connections and podcast or no podcast. I always say um, the people that uh, we interact and engage with, you're, you know, we can always make a nice cup of tea and do this again, whether it's recorded or not. We just sit and have a conversation. Right. Yes. Oh, we would be honored to do that. And yeah. If we ever find ourselves in Canada, we'll definitely. We will. Yes. We will. Eventually. When we when we find ourselves we in find. Canada. And when I find myself in Japan. <laughs> That's please, true. Please, yes, That's you true. have us to show you around to give yeah. you the recommendations. Yes. Um, is there anything else that you want our audience to know, or like uh, any thoughts that you want any to leave thoughts them with? Or yeah. Um, just the fact that uh, you know. I'm accessible and available through all of the social media channels of LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You can always tap into my website and the blog posts. But equally, again, it just goes back to everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. We're all living biographies. We're all living stories. And both of you, the same thing, are living stories. But you're also allowing other people to share their stories with you. So. I applaud you for doing that. And, you know, just the fact that you're doing something that is, again, equally contributing back to society. And uh, I wish you all the best on this adventure. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. We appreciate your friendship and your time today. We really connected with you and we hope to keep this bond growing. Yep. Yeah. Will. And we will. And having more people is wonderful. Also, yes. sharing more wonderful stories. That's right. Yeah. So uh, we'll put all that information in the description down below. Mm -hmm. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you're listening to uh, the podcast through the podcast, your favorite podcast app, please follow us. Or I think now if you if you say subscribe, subscribe actually means to pay money in the Apple. Oh, I see. Yeah. So follow us. Yeah. Follow us. Leave Don't us worry a so much about, about that. Yeah. Yes. If you want to support us, though, uh, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash don't tell my grandma. And we really appreciate you helping us continue 
bringing you these wonderful conversations with awesome people like Sam. Yeah. And um, if you have any questions, please uh, write us an email at podcast at dontellmygrandma.com. And you can find us in all the social medias. We'll put everything down below. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Sam, for your time. And uh, yeah. Hope to talk to you soon. Yes. We will. Bye.